Well, good morning. Welcome to Citadel Square. As Pastor AJ said, my name is Steve Lindemeyer, and I have the privilege and the joy of overseeing our Generation Link ministry here at Citadel Square, as well as giving some oversight to the college ministry, and then also thinking for local and global missions. And so that's kind of my role here. It's a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning and, and to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you're new to Citadel Square, welcome. We're so glad that you chose to be with us here this morning to worship. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're tuning in. We look forward to the time when you can join us together here for the full expression of worship with God's people in God's church. So welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great week to join us this morning because we're going to be talking in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be taking a look at two words that don't usually go together in the same sentence or in the same sermon. And those two words are death and joy. Somebody said, Steve, you must have drawn the short stick because you get to preach on death. Uh, yes, we are going to talk about death this morning, but also get to preach about joy. And you'll see in this message and in this text where these two words can be combined in the same message and in the same text of Ecclesiastes 9. So go ahead and turn there with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There's a a Bible right in front of you uh, in the pew rack. If you're turning on those, in those Bibles, you can turn to page 522. Or if you brought your Bible or your tablet or your iPhone, it's going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're going to work through this morning the first 10 verses of this chapter uh, in Ecclesiastes. Well, as you know, and as we've talked about giving some introduction to this book of the Bible, it's, it's believed more than likely that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. So keep in mind, this is what was said of him is he's the wisest man that ever lived. These are the words of the wisest man that ever lived that we're going to be reading in front of us this morning. Now you're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon is a little bit introspective. He's a little bit contemplative. He's a little bit of a uh, inner processor, philosophical in his demeanor and in his expression of what he presents to us in Ecclesiastes. But in this book, he is providing a realistic account of the human experience within a fallen world. And I don't know about you, but it's just been an incredible book to go through as a church, hasn't it? There's been specific applications and takeaways every single Sunday, and I hear people talking about the text from Ecclesiastes throughout the week. And so God has blessed our church with a study through this particular book, and I hope that that remains the case this morning. Well, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to see Solomon continue his quest for meaning. What does it mean to live in what Solomon calls life under the sun? Life under the sun is the recognizable, observable life on planet earth. And in this chapter, one of the things that we're going to see is that Solomon continues his quest, but he begins to make some profound conclusions. So to use somewhat of an airplane analogy, we've come through eight chapters of Ecclesiastes. We're here in chapter nine, and Solomon's about to make his descent. Now, we're not going to fully touch down at the airport until Ecclesiastes 12, when he makes the final conclusion of all his observations of life under the sun. But right here in chapter nine, we begin our descent. The seatbelt lights have come on. It's time to return to your seat. Put your tray tables in the upright position, put on your seatbelt, and get ready for the descent down to the final truth of Ecclesiastes. But here in chapter 9, we're going to see Solomon make three significant 
and profound conclusions, and here they are. Death is certain, life is unpredictable, and joy is found in living life to the fullest. All right, did you get those three? That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Death is certain, it's a reality that's coming to every one of us. Life is unpredictable, is that not true? Just look around, the things that happen around you are often unpredictable and unaware. But joy is found in living life to the fullest. So death and joy in the same passage. Would you join me in prayer that God would bless our time? Father, this is your word, inspired by you, inerrant and infallible, and you have given it to us, and we thank you for it. Father, would you have your way this morning? Would you illuminate your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to understand it, and then help us make application of it to our lives that we might be transformed through it? So we commit our time to you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's dive into Ecclesiastes 9 together. We're going to start with the first three verses and work our way through. If you want to follow along with me in your Bible or your version, please do. Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 1. This is Solomon's words to us. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of of God. Mark that. We're going to come back to it. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, i.e. the religious or the irreligious. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. What an encouraging text. So glad you've joined us this morning. Solomon, as we get here to Ecclesiastes 9, is going to make some significant conclusions. And two of those that we're going to see in these three verses are this. We all die. We all die. Death is the event that is referred to in verses 2 and verses 3. That the same event happens to all. The same event will happen to every single person in this room. That it is a certain reality that we will all die. But the second conclusion that Solomon makes in this passage is juxtaposed to the idea that we all die, and that's in verse 1, that our life and our deeds are in the hands of God. Believer in Christ, isn't it comforting to know that all of our life and all of our deeds and all the circumstances that happen around us, whether we understand them or not, are in the very hands of God? But death is the common denominator, isn't it? Death is the common destiny of us all. Rich or poor, male or female, black or white, famous or unknown, successful or not, death is coming to each and every one of us. 
Now Solomon has already talked about death and Steve has mentioned on a number of occasions in these passages that a hundred years from now, think about this reality, one hundred years from now, not a single person in this sanctuary will be alive. With that in mind, what kind of legacy are you leaving? See, in this passage, Solomon comes to the crescendo of his point about the meaninglessness of life. We live and then we die. Death will catch up with us all. It doesn't matter how many diets you go on, thankfully. It doesn't matter how many miles you run. It doesn't matter how many Botox injections you've received. Death is coming for every one of us. It doesn't matter how wise you are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how clean you've lived your life. Death is coming for each and every one of us. Look at the pairings in verse 2. Solomon goes to explain this in detail through these six pairings in verse 2 that show us the totality of death's reign. It comes for you. It comes for me. It comes for all of us, irrespective of many attributes of our lives as Solomon lays out in these six comparisons. Look at this with me. Verse 2. To the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to one who sacrifices and one who doesn't, to a good person and a sinner, and to one who swears an oath or one who shuns an oath. It doesn't matter. Death is coming. We will all experience death. What a sobering reality for us on a beautiful Sunday morning. But as we look at those in juxtaposition, why is it that death comes to all people? Because we can often get in the mindset that, but shouldn't my good deeds, shouldn't my faithfulness and obedience prolong my life? Shouldn't I receive some kind of blessing for the way that I live? It seems unfair. And we love fairness, don't we? Some really fit people, some really athletic people, even triathletes die young of a heart attack while chain smokers live into their 90s. It seems unfair. How is it that hardened criminals can live to late stages of life while young children are taken from us way too soon? Now keep in mind as we go through this section that what Solomon is referring to are his observations for life under the sun. The observable life as we see it here on earth. Solomon is not speaking about the afterlife, and that's an important point for us to recognize in this text. He's not making judgments about the afterlife. We know that Jesus speaks about the afterlife, and there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. There is a difference, an eternal difference between the good and the evil, those who trusted him and those who didn't. Solomon is just observing life on this earth and it all comes to the same conclusion. We all face the same destiny. Regardless, we die. But it's a temptation of ours, isn't it, that somehow we believe that God owes us something for our relative obedience and faithfulness. But death is the great equalizer. It's the common destiny. Death is impartial and death is unbiased. Mother Teresa and Saddam Hussein face the same fate. 
As Pastor Matt Chandler said one time, he said, John the Baptist was a godly man and a faithful evangelist, but even he got his head cut off. Leave it to Matt Chandler to say it like it is, straight down the middle, black and white. But we often subtly buy into the prosperity gospel, don't we? You know what the prosperity gospel is? Believe in Christ, trust in Jesus, pay your tithe, and God's going to give you health and wealth and happiness. Just send $500 to the address on the screen, and God offers you abundant life, full of prosperity. And oftentimes we measure our actions and the actions of others by what we deem to be fair. Let me ask you this, church. Have you ever felt slighted by the observable blessings or apparent prosperity of the wicked? While looking at yourself and feeling maybe a little bit slighted at the lack of blessings coming into your life? Have you ever felt that way? You see that guy driving his Ferrari down King Street and you're like, why did he get the Ferrari? What kind of life is he living? I know me personally and, and my wife and I wrestled with this idea through years of infertility. We wanted to have children and we couldn't. And as we looked around and we realized we're a godly family, we're missionaries living overseas and, and we can't have children and yet people are having them that don't want them. That doesn't seem fair. People are having them and then aborting them. That doesn't seem right. We, we want to raise a child in a godly way and for that child to have a godly heritage and, and yet people that don't want children are conceiving. Life seems unfair at times. You see, we often fall into the mindset that's common among most every Thai person. Um, my wife and I were missionaries in Thailand for a number of years, and we learned early on that one of, one of the prominent sayings that undergirded every aspect of their life, it was sort of their philosophy in life, was a saying that in Thai goes, Tam di, dai di, tam chua, dai chua. And it means do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Isn't that often the way that we observe life? You see, we like Job's friends. You remember Job? Chapter after chapter in the book of Job, when devastation came upon Job's life, what were the conclusion of his friends? Job, what did you do wrong? How did you sin to bring about this suffering in your life? And we cast judgment on people when bad things happen. Or when we face sufferings or hardship in this life, we conclude, <clears throat> I must have failed. I must have disappointed God that this thing is happening in my life. I must have done something wrong. If you've ever thought about that, you're not alone. Job's friends were certainly in that camp. But not only Job's friends were in that camp, the disciples who followed Jesus and sat under Jesus' teaching fell into that same trap of belief. You might remember the story in John chapter 9. It's the story of the man who was born blind. It says this, as he passed by, Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Somebody must have sinned because blindness shouldn't happen. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
fascinating reality. The things that we might not can understand in life, in this meaningless life under the sun, Jesus says, I have a purpose and a plan for that. Now, is it true that sometimes we reap what we sow? There are many passages in the New Testament that would say amen and yes to that. Sometimes the consequences of our sin result in hardship and suffering and and even God's discipline. But oftentimes, our difficulty, our hardship, our suffering that comes about in our life is because God has a plan and a purpose in that thing to conform us to his image. So Solomon reminds us here of two truths. In verses two and three, we all die. But in verse one, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And the important thing for us Christians this morning is that we see all of life's happening and all of life's circumstances and even our suffering through the lens of God's attributes. It's one of the reasons that in one of our equip classes we're studying about the attributes of God. Because when we understand who God is, it helps us have a right understanding of the things that are going on around us. If we believe that all of life is in God's hands and yet death and evil and wicked things still happen, we have to understand God's attributes, that God is all sovereign, that God is in control, that God is omnipotent, which means he's all powerful. At the same time, God is good and God is loving. And those things coexist together in the person of God. So that when I see and observe things that don't make sense to me, I see them through the lens of God's goodness and his love. I see them through the lens of his sovereignty, his control, and his power that he's able to do anything and everything. And I conclude because who a God is that I can trust him. That this thing going on in my life or the death that happens through a loved one, or a friend, or an acquaintance. Somehow in God's sovereignty and his goodness and his omnipotence will work out for our good and his glory. But church, it doesn't mean that we will understand it all. Because what we have to realize is that we are human beings with finite minds trying to understand an infinite God. And sometimes there's a disconnect. Even Isaiah understood this when he penned the words in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We can't always understand God but we can trust that God is sovereign and he is good. See, oftentimes our trouble is that we don't understand. (laughs) But God, I just don't understand what you're doing in this moment. But God isn't asking us to understand him. He's asking us to trust him. Matter of fact, I can't think of one verse in all the Bible that commands us to understand the ways of the Lord. But I can think of several that command us to trust 
in the Lord. Solomon himself penned the words earlier in the book of Proverbs, a verse you're probably familiar about, maybe have even memorized. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Depends on what version you use. Depends, uh, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It doesn't say understand the Lord with all of your mind, but trust in the Lord with all of your heart. As the French mathematician and philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal once said, reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things that are beyond it. Let me say that again. Reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things that are beyond it, beyond our reasoning, beyond our comprehension, and beyond our understanding. Citadel Square, what is going on in your life right now that seems beyond understanding, that seems beyond reasonable? Solomon would have us know this morning that God is in control. He holds you and the world in the palm of his hand. And he is creating in you a testimony of his faithfulness. As I wrestled with this idea several years ago during a particularly difficult time in my life, God gave me this this picture, this illustration that I think helps. I often come back to it, so I want to share it with you this morning. And that's this idea of a jigsaw puzzle. How many of you like to put together jigsaw puzzles? Come on, hands go up. You know what it's like. You get the big box of pieces and it's a thousand pieces, 1,500 pieces and you dump them all on the kitchen table and you and the family get around and what's the first thing you do? What's the first thing you look for? The edges. Somebody got it right. The corners. Because once you get the corners, then you can get the edges and once you get the edges, then you have the frame and now you're off to the races and then you get the colors and everybody has their own little way of doing it. Put all the reds up here and all the blues down here and we always go for the easy part you know, because it's easier to get a good start. And, and life is a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. But what's the most important thing about putting together a jigsaw puzzle? You keep going back to it over and over. What is it called? It's the box top, right? It's hard to put together a puzzle without the box top because the box top is the finished product. The box top is the final result. The box top is the beautiful picture that you're doing all of this work to create. And in life, God alone controls the box top. That he knows the picture that he's trying to create in you. He knows the final product. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And what I do is I get my hands on the table and I try to force these two pieces together. And I'm convinced these pieces have to go together. Until I hold it up to the light. Like, oh, these pieces don't go together. I'm convinced that this blue piece is water, and so I put it down at the bottom, and I later found out it's actually sky, and it goes up at the top. But I'm convinced this green piece has to be a leaf in a tree, and I put it at the top of my puzzle, and then I realize, oh, it was grass in the ground below, and I don't have the luxury of seeing the box top. So what God is calling me to do is trust the one who knows the finished product, that the pieces that seem out of order on the table are coming into perfect order according to his sovereignty and his goodness and his plan that are gonna create a beautiful picture. And it's a beautiful picture of us being conformed 
to his image, but God holds the box top. Solomon goes on in this next section to speak of the futility of death, but the hope in life. Did you get that in that last song that we sang? The hope that we have in this life. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verses 4 through 6. But he who is joined with all the living has, say it with me, hope. I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to join in with me. But he who is joined with all the living has, thank you, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Though death is coming for us all, we should celebrate life. We should celebrate the fact, as Jared led us in our reflection time this morning, that we just took another breath. That his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The fact that you can think and process and dream and contemplate the future and think about your mortality and speak to the person next to you and enjoy the life and the sunshine as you drove in this morning is a gift of life. Hope is the big difference between the living and the dead. And in case you were wondering, look back at verse 4. Solomon finally settles the age-old debate. Dogs are better than cats. You see that? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Did you catch that? Actually, I'm about to disappoint you dog lovers. Because as I studied this, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but in ancient Israel, dogs were somewhat despised. Dogs weren't the cute, cuddly pets that jump up on your lap. In ancient Israel, they were more like scoundrels and scavengers, often running in packs and harming people. That They viewed them more like rats than house pets. So, sorry, dog lovers, cat lovers have a, have a point here too. But all joking aside, Solomon's point is that the worst, the worst thing living <clears throat> is better than the best thing dead. Why? Because they have hope. Hope is gone or hope is fulfilled among the dead. Look at verses five and six. Verses five and six help us understand that the dead know nothing, they have no reward, they're easily forgotten, they have no ability to display any kind of emotion, whether love or hate or envy, they're gone. And even the memory of them is forgotten over time. The reality is that in a hundred years, not only will you not exist, but most people will forget that you ever did. Just ask your grandparents about their favorite singer or actor, so vivid in their minds and yet totally unknown to you. Like, who are you talking about? Because one generation is born and another generation is forgotten. But as long as we're alive, we have the awareness of our mortality. And so Solomon says, celebrate life. Celebrate hope. It's one of the best parts about funeral services. Funerals are not always fun to go to. But it's in that moment as the eulogy is being presented that everyone seated there reflects on their mortality. And it's a beautiful thing 
that we can reflect on our mortality because it shows that we're alive in that moment. See, a day is coming when we can no longer love our family, we can no longer serve our church, we can no longer speak words of truth to our children, we can no longer tell our spouse how much we love them. Our time has passed. So brothers and sisters, the good that you have in your heart to do, do it today. Don't wait, don't procrastinate, act and do it now. Because we know in heaven our joy will abound Our spirits will sing, but our life on earth under the sun will be done. No repeats, no second chances, no do-overs. Life as we know it will cease to exist. But now we're going to see Solomon's third conclusion. All that sounds very sober, very contemplative. But this is exciting, verses 7 through 10, as we transition to Solomon's third conclusion that joy is found in living life to the fullest. Read with me. Words of Ecclesiastes here in verse 7 say, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol in the grave to which you are going. See, friends, once you die, knowledge and rewards and memories and emotions, they will all cease. So what should you do in the meantime? Enjoy life. Enjoy every breath, every day, every conversation, every experience in this life that God has given you under the sun. I was looking through some, doing some research on Ecclesiastes, and I came across one pastor who talked through the book of Ecclesiastes, and he titled his entire sermon, Have a Blast While You Last. (laughs) I tried to get Kenny and Steve to change our Ecclesiastes series to Have a Blast While You Last, but they didn't go for it. But I liked it. Have a blast while you you last. Isn't Isn't it fun to be around people that enjoy life? You know that person in your family. You know the optimist among you. You know that person in your workplace that's always happy, doesn't matter what kind of day everybody else is is having. They're always up, they're optimistic, the glass is is always half full or full. They just enjoy life. They enjoy their surroundings. They're up, they're positive. I struggle with this, I'm a little bit too even-keeled. I don't have really low lows, but it prevents me from having some high highs. Have you ever been around a person like that? I'm married to one. And Marie just enjoys life. It was once said of her by a friend that, Marie, you're just the kind of person that relishes the ordinary. I love that phrase. And it's so true that what would it be like to relish the ordinary in life? Flavors and colors and sensations and sunsets and azaleas and cardinals and textures and tastes that God has given these things to us for our enjoyment. What would it look like to relish the ordinary? I had a buddy in college, and and his phrase that he often uses, we just need to live life to the hilt. And I knew what he meant in the context of the conversation, 
but I never understood what hilt was. Anybody know what that means? Live life to the hilt. Okay, so I looked it up. Live life to the hilt is doing anything, doing it to the uttermost with nothing held back. It's actually an analogy. Did you know that the handle of a sword or a dagger, the handle is called the hilt? It says when you plunge the handle or the sword into an object, sounds pretty more like death than happiness here, but you're supposed to go all the way in to the hilt. Go all the way in in life. Live life to the uttermost. Relish the ordinary. This is what Solomon is teaching us here. He's exhorting us in light of life's complexities to enjoy every minute under the sun. You see this, as we've studied through Ecclesiastes, this is the sixth time that Solomon has said something very similar. Eat, drink, and be merry. However, in the first five occurrences of this thought in Ecclesiastes, they've been indicative statements, simple observations. But here, Solomon changes his tone in chapter 9. That here, it's not an indicative statement, it's an imperative statement. That these statements we're about to look at and analyze are commands. That Solomon says, go, eat, drink, enjoy, work to the glory of God. Let's look at some of these commands. Verse 7, eat your bread with joy. Now see, we're getting to some real applicable stuff now. Enjoy food. Enjoy the fellowship around the table that comes with it. Isn't it awesome that God has given us a variety of tastes and textures and seasoning and spices and sweet and bitter and sour? It's awesome. Enjoy it. Aren't you glad that we don't have to eat manna day after day after day? That's this bland substance that just fills our bellies but has no variety or or seasoning. It was one of the greatest curses of COVID that some of you lost your ability to taste and smell because taste is a wonderful gift from God. Last week, Pastor Steve and Pastor AJ and I were going to have a meeting and sometimes we meet over lunch. And so I sent the guys a text and I said, do you guys want to eat and meet or do you just want to eat meat? And I put in parentheses, Lewis barbecue. I don't have to tell you what the decision was on where we met that day for lunch, Lewis Barbecue. God says, enjoy the bread and the food and the brisket that is put in front of you, because it's awesome. And you can sit there and you can enjoy every bite to the glory of God. First time I ever had brisket queso. And let me just say, they're not paying me any money to say this, you need to go try it. Lewis Barbecue, brisket queso. I didn't know there was such a thing. Verse 7 says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Wine was simply the drink of choice in ancient Israel. Part of enjoying life is enjoying a tasty beverage. So for you Southerners, for lunch, go get you that big glass of sweet tea and just enjoy it. And the Northerners are thinking, why do they put sugar in their tea? I don't understand it. You get what you like and you drink it to your heart's content, knowing that God has given you that sweetness for your delight and his glory. Verse eight says, let your garments be always white. Certainly white was a color of choice in the ancient Near East to help reflect the heat of the sun. But it was also a color that was worn to festivities and celebrations. You see what Solomon's saying here? Put on your good clothes. 
and enjoy life. Have a good meal and enjoy the fact that you're still alive to enjoy that good meal. Verse eight continues, let not oil be lacking on your head. Any of you forget to put the oil on your head this morning before coming to church? We don't do that in today's culture. Some of us are trying to get the oil out of our hair. But in that culture, oil was a means of protecting the skin from the heat and the dry conditions in their culture. And the other thing to note is that oil was often a way to apply perfumes and fragrances and beautiful smells. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Good of Solomon to keep wife singular there. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Your wife should be your best friend. Enjoy her spiritually and emotionally and physically. This same author Proverbs says back in Proverbs 5, Solomon says back in Proverbs 5, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May you ever be captivated by her love. Solomon says, the life that God has given you under the sun, enjoy it. Guys in the room, take notes, because Solomon is giving you some great marital advice here. What does he say? What is he telling you? Get dressed up, put on some cologne, and take your wife out to dinner for a great date. I mean, this is one of the easiest sermons ever to apply. I can see the headlines in our church newsletter next month. Giving at Citadel Square goes down 30% because the entire congregation went to Charles Hall's Chop House to celebrate. Get dressed up, put on perfume, go out with your spouse or your relative or the relationships that you enjoy and enjoy life. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Some of us love our jobs. Some of us maybe not so much. But do you realize that work was given to Adam before the fall? Work is something to be celebrated. Work is something to give yourself to excellently. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Enjoy your job to the glory of God. Find a hobby. Get together with your family and do something with your hands and realize that this would not be possible that side of death. We can work with our hands now because God, God has given us life, he's given us breath, and he's given it to us to celebrate. So if you were brought up in a brand of Christianity that said, if it feels good and makes me happy and I enjoy it, then it must be sin. Any of you familiar with that concept? Then you need to sit down and have a talk with Solomon because he's gonna tell us something vastly different in this text. One day death will steal all of this from you, so enjoy it while you can. Have a blast while you last. And Paul echoes this idea in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. A lot of Piper fans in here I know. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
And one of the ways to be most satisfied in Him is to enjoy the good gifts that He's given us. We've got one more important thing to say. Here's what we've said so far. Death is certain. Life is unpredictable. And joy is found in living life to the fullest. You see, what Ecclesiastes depicts for us is the reality of the death curse that is on all of humanity. But what it's supposed to do in us is make us long for something beyond the grave. Even Solomon recognized this in chapter 3 when he said, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. There's something deep within us that know there's something more, that longs for something better, that longs for the day when all pain and suffering and hardship and tears will be no more. And what Ecclesiastes aches for, the New Testament presents to us, that Solomon's observations were strictly dealing with life under the sun. But I want to end with one observation that deals with life in the sun. You'll get to play on words in just a minute. If you've ever felt the sting of death, you're not alone. Have you felt it? Through a loved one, through an acquaintance, through a friend? Well, Jesus had an encounter with two sisters that were feeling the sting of death because their brother, Lazarus, had just died. You know that feeling. There's a sense of despair. There's a sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of loss. And now Jesus has this interaction with these two sisters that are dealing with the realities that Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes 9. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to finish with this story. It's in John 11, starting in verse 17. That's going to be on page 844 if you're in one of the pew Bibles. When the sting of death created despair, Jesus provided hope. And we will all feel, as Ecclesiastes teaches us, the sting of death. And in that moment, we need to know that Jesus and him alone is our hope. Verse 17 in John 11, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, and I want you to get this, church. Jesus said to her, the woman that just lost her brother and was despairing in death, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he concludes with a profound question. Martha, do you believe this? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is our hope, not only in the life to come, but in John 10, 10, he, 10, 10, he says, I have come that you might have life abundantly and to the full. 
that his hope for us is not only waiting till the day that we die and get to spend eternity with him, but he's given us this life now to the full for it to be abundant. That Jesus, through his death and burial and resurrection, he conquered death. He gave us forgiveness on the cross. He took our sin and our shame and he took it upon himself that we might have life to the full and life abundantly because he is the resurrection and the life. And my question to you this morning is the same question that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? First time visitor to Citadel Square, do you believe this? Those who are tuning in online, do you believe this? This is true. 50-year member of Citadel Square, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he paid for your sins on the cross to not only promise you an eternal life to come, but to give you an abundant life now? Death is certain. Life is unpredictable. Joy is found in living life to the full. But the only way that we can do that is the last point is that eternal life is found in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we're about to sing about because death was arrested and our life began. Join me in prayer before we sing. Father, we are sobered on one hand this morning by the reality of death. But we're reminded that you have conquered death for us, that we might have life in the sun, not just experience the complexities of life under the sun. So God, help us to enjoy life. The cares and the worries and the burdens that are around us, we want to enjoy you and the good gifts that you've given us. So even now, as we sing this reality, may it be a song from our heart, and we commend it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.